Coming up today, how gig economy laws caused strip club chaos and assessing your risk of dying in a nuclear war. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to the future of tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Amit Katwala, and joining me this week are Morgan Mika. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when Netflix announced a turnaround in its fortunes as it increased its subscribers by 2.4 million between July and September after shedding customers in the first half of the year. The company is planning to roll out a lower-cost ad-supported tier next month. It was also the week when Deliveroo said it was leaving the Netherlands, where it has 9,000 riders. Delivery apps have been pulling out of markets all over Europe as investors become wary of backing unprofitable, cash-burning businesses through an economic downturn. And a damaged deep-sea cable has left most of the Shetlands in Scotland without internet this week, in an incident that some have attributed to Russia and others to a fishing incident. And it was finally the week when the Alaska snow crab season was cancelled for the first time ever. So usually the winter is a peak season for catching snow crabs, but billions of crabs seem to have dramatically disappeared over the last couple of years. It's thought to be because warmer seas have reduced the crab's habitat and left them more exposed to predators. Morgan, I'm quite concerned about the future of the food delivery industry. Who is going to be bringing me my SoftBank subsidised... fast food now if all these companies are pulling out because they've realised their model is unprofitable and unworkable. Well, luckily for you, London seems to be one of the markets that they're all kind of still staying in. Um, If you live in Belgium or the Netherlands, then you'd be a bit more in trouble. Um, I think companies are just making the assessment that markets like that, they have to invest way too much money in to, to become a market leader. So they're kind of focusing all their efforts on places they perceive to be more profitable, like London. They always said this was the model, didn't they? That a company like Uber was planning to basically flood the market with cheap deals, build up such a, essentially build a monopoly and then raise prices. But because so many new newcomers have come in, no one's really managed, particularly in food, to to get that all-controlling state. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, the thing about food delivery is it seems to be kind of like who can last the longest. You're not making a lot of money at the moment. So it's kind of like who can who can get enough money just to kind of stay in the market long enough to beat out all your competitors. And now we're starting to see a lot of companies kind of bowing out of certain markets because they're deciding that it's just not worth doing that anymore. Yeah, I guess as people kind of tighten the purse strings, those luxuries like takeaway food are probably one of the first things to go. All right, let's move on to fun facts. Matt Reynolds, what have you got for us? So I have a fact about eels. Now, scientists have never found freshwater eel eggs or early hatchlings in the wild. And so the mystery of how eels reproduce has troubled these scientists for centuries and centuries. In fact, Freud famously, his first, or one of his first jobs was dissecting eels to find their reproductive organs, because for a long time, people thought that eels maybe didn't reproduce, and maybe they kind of came from the soil or something like that. Um, But there's been an update in terms of eel reproduction, and scientists have tracked mature adults all the way to their breeding ground in the Sargasso Sea, but they still haven't seen them reproduce in the wild or observed spawning in the area. That's absolutely fascinating. So we just have no idea where eels come from. Well, we have a really good idea of where eels come from because it seems to be the Sargasso Sea because we know that mature adults go there and then we know know, a little bit later on that we see kind of... um, 
slightly smaller, you know, juvenile eels in the area. But what we don't see is this bit before. Usually you'd expect to see the egg spawning and then um, them being fertilised by sperm. But we haven't been able to observe this. We've, we've seen it in, the, um, in captivity, but we've never been able to see it in the wild. So it's some kind of mysterious eel factory in the sea. My, my Caribbean geography might be letting me down slightly here, but isn't this almost exactly where the Bermuda Triangle is as well, Matt? <laughs> something very strange is going on here. So are you saying that the, the sheer mass of all these eels has this thing that maybe attracts ships and planes and maybe yeah maybe they're related i'm just saying maybe the guys get Mulder and scully in to figure out what's going on this could be something uh paranormal all right morgan you've also got a fact for us okay so i've got a kind of uh, amalgamation of facts so basically this week liz Truss became britain's shortest serving prime minister resigning after just 44 days in office so that made me think about other short serving world leaders so in the UK, Truss is not doing well. She's taken the title for the shorting, shortest serving UK leader. But globally, she's actually doing quite well. So William Henry Harrison, the ninth US president, he died in 1841 from pneumonia on his 32nd day in office. So reports at the time link his illness to his refusal to wear a coat or hat that day, which seems a bit questionable. Um, German Nazi politician Joseph Goebbels spent just one night as German Chancellor after Hitler shot himself as the Allies closed in on Berlin back in 1945. But the following morning, Goebbels also committed suicide alongside his wife and children. But the official Guinness World Record goes to, for the shortest serving world leader, goes to Louis XIX of France, who abdicated after only 20 minutes on the throne in 1830. But apparently... Louis's brief stint as king was only a technicality, so after the overthrow of his father, King Charles X, in the Second French Revolution, he was just sort of a, a bridging king. Fascinating stuff. I think of those people, Liz Truss is probably most similar to William Henry Harrison in that she stubbornly refused to follow <laughs> advice and got swiftly removed from office as a result. Very but, true. Uh, <laughs> uh, some political uh, political commentary for you there. All right, our first story this week is about the unintended consequences of a gig economy law. Natasha and Morgan, over to you. Yeah, so a few years ago, um, a lot of Uber drivers and Lyft drivers were protesting in California because they felt like they were being given the short end of the stick of employment law. They were arguing that they only work for platforms, that they only do this job, and yet they're not entitled to any of the benefits that any staff members or employees would normally gain. This is like holiday days, sick days, and this especially was exacerbated during the pandemic when a lot of them felt like it wasn't safe to work. So about three years ago, California decided to introduce this state law called AB5, which was designed to help fix this ongoing problem in the gig economy. And allow them to receive some of the same benefits as on-staff people would at companies. And this was supposed to encourage platforms like Uber and Lyft to fix some of the problems that it has with its workforce. But actually what's really happened is that neither Uber nor Lyft nor any of the gig economy companies that were targeted by this law have actually changed much aside from doing some voluntary concessions to their drivers. Instead, uh, this has been radically reinterpreted by a completely different and some might say random um, part of the economy, which is uh, strip clubs. 
So Morgan, I know you've been looking into this. What did you find out? Yeah, so I started looking into this because I knew there had always been this strange synergy between the strip club industry and the gig economy. So like Uber drivers or delivery riders, dancers in strip clubs also occupy this grey area between employee and independent contractor status. So clubs have argued that because dancers get a lot of freedom in the way they do their work, they shouldn't have to pay them like employees. So one dancer I spoke to said some clubs let you just turn up if you want to work one night. You don't have to tell the club that you're coming. You just turn up, dance, earn your money, give the club a sometimes quite significant cut and then you go home again. So it's kind of like logging into an app. So interestingly, gig economy companies themselves have tried to use the strip club model to argue why their workers should stay as independent contractors. So in 2017, Uber argued in a UK court that its drivers were kind of like dancers in a famous British strip club called Stringfellows. In 2012, a Stringfellows dancer tried to argue in a tribunal that the club treated her like a contractor when really she should be an employee. The tribunal, however, disagreed, saying the club just provided her with a marketplace to sell her services. So Uber tried to argue that it operated in a similar way, although the argument didn't actually work for Uber in that case. So since this happened, there has been a constant drumbeat of lawsuits in the US filed by dancers in US strip clubs. So I initially thought maybe it'd be interesting to go back to these dancers and ask them, kind of, has legislation passed to kind of fix gig economy problems helped them but that's actually not what I found at all at least in the US. Yeah it kind of feels like despite Uber's um, argument that you know a lot of these people maybe are on the same side you know I'm, I'm sure that perhaps you know neither drivers nor strip club dancers would agree that they're as similar <laughs> as perhaps people might think but but it feels like a lot of them are reliant on the same kind of source of income from the same employer and therefore could you know benefit from the status of employee and some of the securities that are associated with that but it feels like even though a lot of these um sort of dancers have been filing employment claims trying to become employees when they have gotten this through AB5, it's not been exactly what they expected, right? It's kind of a poison chalice situation where they've got the status of employee, but they don't necessarily have all of the rights or benefits or in fact take home things. So it feels like, you know, from what you were from what you reported in your story and the dancers that spoke to you, that their pay has been slashed and now their work is more precarious than ever. So h- how did this happen? How was this law interpreted in such a way that this ended up being the end result? So basically this law effectively forced strip clubs to hire the dancers they still wanted to keep on their roster as employees. So all of a sudden they had to give them benefits, including minimum wage. And in response, strip clubs used this as an opportunity to totally overhaul the way that dancers were paid after AB5 was introduced in 2019. So payment has always really varied club to club, dancers told me. But before AB5, dancers could usually expect to keep the majority of the money they earned through private dances or time in the VIP room. They would give clubs kind of a a minority cut of that money. But after AB5, many clubs started to say they needed to keep the first $100 or $120 that a dancer earns from private dances to cover the cost of paying their employees minimum wage. Then after they, those dancers had reached that $100 threshold, for example, the club still took a cut of any dancers they made, any money they made after that. 
So although dancers were suddenly guaranteed minimum wage, most of them said that their wages took a real hit. So one dancer turned researcher I spoke to, Alana Turner at the University of Minnesota, who's been studying the problem in strip clubs, said dancers' wages dropped by up to 80%, so really significant drops. And she has so far interviewed 35 dancers about AB5 for her research, and so far she's only found one that told her that her wages had not been hit since the law was introduced. And I think this is this kind of speaks to the way strip clubs and other clubs have been operating for for the since the beginning of time, right? Where you have days where you know the club's more popular, there's a lot more clients, there's a lot more activity, there's a lot more work to be done, a lot more money to be made, and there's other days where it's kind of dead. And you would expect that having minimum wage guaranteed might be a good thing, but actually how it's working out is that, you know, the the days when it's dead they may they may not take home almost anything at all and the days when it's actually active their cut is smaller than it was uh, prior to AB5 and so I, I think one of the interesting things that you pointed out there is the fact that you know they had to actually physically hire dancers so you could no longer have sort of a rotation people showing up on the day saying I'd like to dance and you going okay because they had to be on the staff rota right and, and so you were you were saying that that dancers told you that the law was interpreted in a, in a specific way right and, and it kind of means I suppose especially in your reporting it showed that people were saying that this was sort of I suppose a change where you wouldn't get the typical strip club hire um, so a lot of the diversity you might see within the ranks of, of dancers was kind of pushed out of the industry right so can I ask you, what, what is a typical strip club hire? Yeah, so this term came up a lot. So a typical strip club hire is a term used in industry to describe a dancer that skews white, thin and younger. So one dancer who we call Teddy in the piece, which is a pseudonym, she said that when clubs were able to hire dancers only as employees, they became a lot more selective about which dancers they kept on their roster. She said a lot of clubs that may have veered away from these typical strip club hires before really started going back towards that because she claimed that they were trying to maximise their profits. So that meant for people like Teddy, who's black and describes herself as alternative looking, she's got piercings and tattoos, she suddenly found it much harder to get hired. For the first time in years, she'd been dancing for six years by this point, she was forced to get a second job in a restaurant, and since then she's taken an indefinite break from dancing. So it really changed kind of the the people who were who were dancing. It had a big impact on who got that employee status. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things about Teddy is that, you know, at the very beginning of the piece, she explains how she'd always earned decent money. She'd always been, you know, a popular dancer. There's, there's, there's never been a problem. And then this change was introduced and it meant that a lot of the doors were closed, which is, you know, frankly, a bit discriminatory. Um, and I, I assume it would affect a lot of the people um, working in the, in the industry as well at some point or another in their careers. Um, but one of the other things that you found that was quite frustrating for dancers that you spoke to is that I suppose a lot of them had hopes that they might become employees. Um, not everyone in the industry obviously wants to. A lot of them appreciate their freedom, which is such an echo to what um, the likes of gig economy companies have been saying for some time now. You know, our workers appreciate their freedom. They don't want to be tied down to contracts, etc. Um, but but yeah, you, you've got sort of a split within the, the industry itself. It's not it's not like everyone wanted to be employees. But I, I think the thing that unites them and what you showed in your articles that none of them wanted to be employees like this, right? All these problems as a result of this law, which was designed for a completely different industry, has been really, you know, battering them. And, and I suppose, you know, it's, it's interesting when you think about 
the fact that this this was designed for gig economy companies and as i said before at the, at the top of this this um segment you know uber and lyft have not had to adopt this, right? They had a controversial vote in 2020 called Prop 22, which creates, created an exemption for them. So it's, it, they didn't have to actually make any changes. Uh, and as, as part of the pandemic, obviously, they included some sick pay and some vacation time, but that was basically it. So I suppose it, it, it kind of feels, again, a bit random, right? What did dancers do wrong here or what do they think went wrong in their industry uh, why do they think ab5 has had such a negative effect and how why do they think it was interpreted in such a way that has been so damaging for them yeah so when i spoke to dancers and former dancers they were really clear that they they don't think ab5 is a bad law but they do think that the way strip clubs interpreted the law was what they said really horrific so Another dancer who goes by the name of Velveeta told me these unintended consequences are definitely the fault of the clubs, she said. And she said if the clubs were to follow the law correctly by kind of the letter and the spirit, then dancers would have minimum wage on top of keeping all their tips and they would have some fair share of the lap dance money. So she talked about how if AB5 was properly enforced, then these problems wouldn't exist, but she believes it's not being properly enforced. But I do think there is a sense that that the strip club industry has been subjected to this law that wasn't designed for them. I mean, when you listen, when you read about kind of lawmakers who are campaigning for it back in 2019, they were kind of referencing Uber drivers and DoorDash couriers, industries that are a lot more prominent in the public debate. Um, Teddy told me that she felt dancers had been caught up in AB5 basically as a technicality, kind of like an afterthought. And others said that, yes, that there are similarities between gig work and and dancing, but there are also really big differences. Uh, Velvita said, for example, she works every night at the same club, a physical location, and that's very different from gig workers who spend most of their time in their car or on their bike, even if they're working technically for the same company, Uber or or delivery. So from talking to dancers, I got the sense that the industry is really divided. Like not everyone in the industry wants to be an employee. Um, But there is a feeling that if the industry was subject to legislation, it should be tailored. The strip club industry is quite a specific kind of industry. And dancers don't want to be kind of lumped together with kind of all these other gig workers and just assume they've got the same problem. Yeah. And and this this obviously, I mean, it's it's an interesting sort of wrinkle. And that's why we focus in on strip clubs specifically, because it's it's just a very unexpected twist for AB5 to be applied to this very, very different industry. But it's not the only industry where this will be applied, right? I mean, we've got other industries that, again, are protesting because this this law is being foisted upon them. Yeah, so, I mean, when AB5 was introduced, it caused big ripple effects with writers and other freelancers who did work like transcription work. But in... In the process of it being introduced, a lot of exemptions were made. Like lots of industries were given exemptions because they they had kind of the policy li- makers listen to them, kind of air their reasons why they didn't think it would have a positive impact on their industry. So there's only a few now that are still very vocal. I mean, the strip club industry is one of them. Trucking is another industry. In July, there was a big protest in California where truckers said they didn't want to want AB five to be applied to them. So. It is sort of having an impact on lots of different people, but the strip club industry 
do my reporting really stood out as one industry that had been radically changed and it was difficult to find anyone who said that that it had gone well or they had had a the AB5 had had a positive impact on the way they did their work and that seemed quite unusual. It's so funny that obviously a lot of dancers say we don't think AB5 is a bad law but if you look no one wants to have it like not the gig economy companies that it was targeting not actually you know any of the other industries that it could be applied to it doesn't seem to to be you know the ticket for anyone actually um so, so i i guess my my last question for you is what's next for these dancers what other options do they have i mean just on that last point some industries have been quite positive about it the theater industry is one industry that really thinks it's helped them um especially people who are doing things like rigging and like hanging lights in like big theatres, they feel like it's very helpful to have kind of injury insurance. Um, and so, so there are some industries that say it has gone well. But I think that for, in terms of the strip club in, industry, I mean, dancers, there have been some attempts by dancers to repeal AB5 or create an exemption for strip clubs. I'm not sure how much traction that's really getting. But dancers also told me now that as people in their industry sort of shift their focus to surviving under AB5 instead of repealing it. They've started joining attempts to unionise and dance activist movements in numbers that are really quite unusual, kind of bigger numbers than ever before. So it'll be interesting to see whether these efforts are going to have an impact. I mean, right now there's a... Uh, the US... There's, there's a, the, some dancers are campaigning to join the first ever US union in North Hollywood... Um, and so that would be quite a big deal. And so some people are sort of describing AB5 as kind of a spark that's pushing people into more kind of collective action within the industry. It's a really, really fascinating story. Thanks, Morgan. You can read it more about it on, on wide.com. Morgan, do you think that maybe five or 10 years down the line, once things have settled down, the industry will, the workers in the industry will be in a better place because of AB5 than they were before AB5 in the sense that if they unionise, they can get better working conditions, better pay and end up better off overall? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think from talking to dancers, there was a sense that they're really unclear about what happens next. And I think that, I mean, there is a possibility that if there's more unionisation in the industry and they get a, a stronger voice, I mean, the the dancers in North Hollywood have joined together with a, a theatre union called Actors Equity. And so it is kind of creating a platform for dancers to air their grievances in a way that's a bit different to, to these dancers' lawsuits that they were doing before. And um, one person did tell me that a positive of AB5 is, I mean, there has been moments in for the strip club industry where dancers have been regulated in a way where the debate is whether this should be criminalised or not. And at least we have moved beyond that. And now we're getting into the point where it's kind of how best to legislate this industry. How do we avoid this problem of, of dancer misclassification? Um, and at least this is getting it out of, this is taking the pressure to change misclassification away from the individual because until now it has been very focused on one dancer or a group of dancers in one club taking their club to court and saying that we should be considered employees so I think it could be kind of a hinge that the industry that people in the industry can use to advocate for 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 better conditions but I mean, it's really unclear about what will happen next. It's super interesting. I think it's a really interesting example of the power of lobbying as well, because you had this law that was essentially designed to clamp down on big tech companies, but they basically managed to use lobbying to wriggle out of it. And so the people that actually end up being hit with the law are the people that don't have the resources to effectively lobby to get the laws changed on their behalf. Fascinating stuff. Morgan, thank you. 
Our second story this week is slightly <laughs> morbid. It's about how to calculate your risk of dying in a nuclear war. <laughs> Matt Reynolds, thanks for bringing the cheer as always. Yeah, I just really like to, you know, end people's note, uh, weeks on a really, a really upbeat note. So I think that a little bit like you hinted, Amit, this is something that no one really wants to confront this risk of, well, actually, what is the chance to me of dying in a nuclear conflict? And I guess when I say me, I mean someone living in London. You might also think about someone living in a major city in the US or in Europe. But this has unavoidably been the at the top of people's minds, you know, since the war has been going on in, in Ukraine, but particularly in the last couple of weeks as things have escalated and the nuclear rhetoric from Putin has escalated. And although I think people maybe dislike the idea of assigning a probability, well, you know, when you've had these conversations about nuclear war, often you have responses like, oh, it will never happen, or if it happens, um, I'll be dead. And you find that even in the popular press, people are quite unwilling to assign specific probabilities to something like this. But what I've been doing this week is speaking to people who say that we can talk about nuclear war in terms of probabilities. We can put a percentage risk on it. And so we can actually be quite specific and say that there's, say, a certain percentage of risk over the next month that a nuclear weapon will be used in Ukraine or London. And I think naturally a lot of people would be like, that's quite a weird thing to say. I don't think we can say that with any sense of confidence or accuracy. But I think that actually, if you if you think about the history of this, we already know that the risk isn't zero, right? We know that nuclear weapons were used at the end of World War II. And since then, there have been a handful of close calls. And in fact, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, John F. Kennedy estimated that the chance of nuclear conflict was between one in three and even. And I think Kissinger also said, um, you know, uh, uh, basically the Saturday when kind of tensions peaked, he said... I really considered that I would never see another Saturday. So this idea that people actually in the moment really do conceive of this in terms of um, probabilities, I, I think is kind of borne out by history. And I would also say that actually maybe thinking about nuclear war in terms of probabilities might help us make better decisions about our own lives. And it could also provide some hints about how we could avoid similar situations or similar risks in the future and this week you've been digging into some of the kind of research that's been done in this area it's really super interesting stuff uh, and researchers have come up with a kind of catchy metric for assessing your risk of of death from from various activities whether that be nuclear war or something else <laughs> yes i like the idea that nuclear war is, a, is an activity like what are you doing this weekend I'm <laughs> horse riding and then a little bit of nuclear war but yeah you're, you're completely right so i think intuitively we know that different activities have different risks. Sounds like a really stupidly simple thing to say, but actually in 1980, there's a Stanford engineering professor called uh, Ronald Howard who worked in this field of um, decision analysis and, and risk analysis. And he came up with a really simple way to convey this difference in risk between different activities. And he coined a measurement that he called the micromort. And each micromort equals a one in a million chance of death. So you might um, conceptualise this as across your entire lifetime, you will be exposed to one mort of risk. You will definitely die at some point during your lifetime. But you can break this down into one in a million chances of death and so compare different activities. So just to start off with some examples, scuba diving is pretty risky at five micromorts per trip. 
but it's nowhere near as risky as something like base jumping, which is 430 micromorts per jump. So again, like you probably have an intuitive idea of which of those two things would were more risky or less risky, but actually looking at the data, you can really say how risky each activity is. Another really common example, traveling 230 miles by car would add up to one micromort, but to get that same micromort of risk, you'd only need to go six miles by motorcycle. So we know that traveling by motorcycle is many times uh, riskier than traveling by car. And actually just an extra micromort, about one micromort of risk is roughly your chance of sudden death if you're age 20 and you're healthy. So you, most people are kind of exposed to around one micromort of risk per day anyway. And all this extra stuff is on is on top of that. The data on this so throws up some kind of surprising results. Some things are much riskier than you think and vice versa. Um, we thought... <laughs> Me and Matt thought it'd be fun to have a quiz for the group. So I don't know the answers to this either. So we're going to play a game of which is riskier. Yes, exactly. So yeah, this is good. this is a fun activity. So Morgan, Natasha, I want you, and, and Amir, I want you to uh, give me what you think is riskier about the, the next two activities I'm going to describe. So you just heard about base jumping, which has a 430 micromorts per jump risk. But is that riskier or less risky than getting out of bed aged 90. Uh, Morgan, you look like you're ready to go. I think base jumping age 90 is probably riskier than getting out of bed. <laughs> well, <laughs> what, what about base jumping across all age ranges versus getting out of bed age 90? I feel like base jumping is more risky. Okay. Uh, Natasha? I don't know. Where, where am I base jumping? <laughs> this is a general oh. risk of base jumping. That, I mean, you're not base jumping okay. from, like, your sofa. You know, generally, oh, right. it's on a mountain. <laughs> yeah. All right, so it's with a professional base jumping equipment in a professional base jumping environment. Yes, you can assume that. We'll actually talk... In a sec, I want to talk a little bit about how these things are calculated. But, yeah, you, you okay. can assume okay. that. And, and as a 90-year-old, I would be in a normal bed, not a special bed with rails. <laughs> Oh, no. I just as... need to know all the information to, like, judge. So No, this is, as a 90-year-old, an exceptionally thin bed that's actually raised 17 feet above the floor. <laughs> no, this is, this is your normal... In, in other words, a way to think about this is, on death certificates, how many say, or, you know, in, in, um, when people are admitted to hospital and eventually are declared dead, how many say, well, this was an injury sustained while they got out of bed, age 90, you know, essentially. I feel okay, like that I, was a clue. I would say 90, 90. Okay, so you think getting out of bed age 90 is riskier than base jumping, Amit? Yes. Everything everything you're saying there has to be base jumping, but the fact you're answering the question makes me think that it is somehow getting out of bed age 90. (laughs) The classic flaw of these quizzes, really. Uh, you you haven't given me an answer, Amit. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna say base jumping. Okay, so we've got two for base jumping, one for getting out of bed. I can say it is getting out of bed age 90. Yes. I, I, wow. yes. The reason I use that example is because they're actually very similar risks. So base jumping per jump, 430 micromorts. Getting out of bed age 90, 463 micromorts. So gives you about a, an indication of the, of the same level of risk. Um, this one might be a bit harder, actually. Um, which is riskier in terms of micromorts? Going for a swim or skydiving skydiving what age wait wait ask questions morgan (laughs) 
<laughs> let's uh, let's let's speed through these, shall we? We don't want to spend right. too much time on the Wait, quiz. Wait, how many questions are there? Matt? There's only there's one, one more after, after this. this. But, um, okay, okay. Okay, so Morgan said skydiving. Sky Natasha? I say swimming. Swimming. Amit? I'm, I know the answer to this. I'm going to recuse myself. Yeah, you're right. We discussed this before. So I, actually, I didn't pick a very good one for this one. I can confirm that going for a swim is riskier than skydiving. <laughs> yes, I don't like that. I'm cheering. But... Data. Yes. So going for a swim um, incurs a risk of about 12 micromorts, which you might be interested to know is about the same risk as taking ecstasy. Um, but skydiving per jump is between 8 and 10 micromorts. So they're very similar um, levels of risk. And um, But yes, uh, going for a swim is, is riskier, according to the data. Final one here. What is riskier? A mountaineering ascent to the Matterhorn or being infected with Spanish flu. And, and I assume that's being infected with Spanish flu like during the, uh, the pandemic you know, in 1918, not, not today. Spanish flu. Okay. Yeah, Spanish flu. Okay, we've got two for Spanish flu. Amit? Yeah, I think it's Spanish flu. Didn't have that. didn't have, to have like a really high fatality rate, Spanish yeah. flu. So you're all right. It is uh, being infected by the Spanish flu. That is a 3,000 micromort. Uh, per infection compared to 2,800 um, uh, for mountaineering, uh, for yeah, ascending the Matterhorn. You might be interested to know that a mountaineering ascent to Mount Everest is, is humongous. That exposes you to almost 38,000 uh, micromorts of risk. I, I mean, really, the statistics for uh, going up Everest are quite scary. I think it's something like more than 10% of all people that try to get to the top end up dying. It's why I have not ascended Everest, in fact. Oh, is that why? exactly (laughs) makes sense i guess these things add up as well so you know if you ascend everest age 90 while while on ecstasy getting out of bed is just you're just rolling the dice really aren't you (laughs) um all right Uh, um thanks for the quiz matt i thought that was fascinating um how do they actually calculate these things? What's the data that's being plugged in to calculate these micromorts? Yes, there is actually a serious point to all of this, although uh, hopefully that was kind of a little bit enlightening. And yeah, the point is, is we actually have pretty good data on how people die. When someone dies, people are pretty interested to say, well, how do we die? It'd be good if we can make sure that doesn't happen again in the future. So these statistics for base jumping, for example, they're from a study of over 20,000 base jumps uh, from a mountain range in Norway between 1995 and 2005. So over that study period, nine people died. So then basically, if you do nine divided by 20,000 and times it by a million, million, that gives you your micromort value per jump, 430. And, and the reason why I didn't answer your question at the time, Natasha, is that that kind of highlights that this data isn't perfect, right? So maybe those deaths happened in the early part of that time frame and technology improved since then. But it does give us a rough indication of how risky something is. And for something like road deaths, especially road deaths versus, you know, in a car versus um, um, a motorbike in a certain country, we have really good data on that. So actually you can be pretty accurate in terms of, you know, what the risks are for those different methods of transport, same for train or, or plane and all these kind of things. And we can actually apply a similar kind of reasoning to our present situation. And we might be able to think about nuclear war in terms of probabilities. And the idea is, is that maybe if we think about risk and personal risk and perhaps cumulative risk, that might help us make better decisions about our own lives and um, you know, how we might want to respond to these nuclear conflicts. And actually, there's a field of research that's kind of tried to do exactly that, right? It's called super forecasting. And it 
sort of tries to make predictions about the likelihood of these global events like a nuclear war. And it's kind of come into vogue in the last couple of decades. Yeah, exactly. It's really, you know, I think listeners might have heard of it before, but just you know, quick summary. So, yeah, this field of super uh, forecasting really became popular or was, was popularised by a Canadian academic called Philip Tetlock, and he published a influential, influential book on the topic in, in 2015. And the general gist is that even experts in a particular field are actually really quite bad at knowing what will happen in the future. So if you ask economists, when will there be a recession? How bad will the recession be? Generally, they're actually pretty bad at predicting the future. Um, but what Tetlock found is that some people are unusually good at making verifiable predictions across a broad range of topics. And these people are often labelled super forecasters. And you know, over the last few years, governments have become increasingly interested in tapping up their expertise to help make smarter policy decisions, especially in the UK and in the US. So when it comes to this Ukraine crisis, I spoke to one group of forecasters that are called Samotsvati. So this group, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big cast, I think it's maybe between eight and 12 um, forecasters. They're really some of the best forecasters in the world. So in 2020, they won one of these really big forecasting competitions where they're asked all kinds of arcane future scenarios. So they're asked weird questions like, in the next year, how many um, of this special type of visa will be granted to Chinese nationals uh, for, the, for the USA? Or they might be asked, in Q4 2020, what will be the combined revenue of all the top tech firms uh, in the world? Or, you know, the combined revenue of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, etc. And so they won this competition in 2020. They won it again in 2021. And they're still in the top place in 2022. And actually, their expertise extends at least to some extent to this current crisis. So in late February, these forecasters bet around $14,000 that Russia would invade by the end, uh, invade Ukraine by the end of the year. And they ended up winning just over $32,000. So basically they were saying, yeah, we think this invasion is pretty likely at a time when most people didn't think it was likely. It's hard to imagine that situation now. Now we're, you know, the war has happened, but you know, back at the beginning of the year, a lot of people just thought this really would never happen. So these people are pretty good at making predictions. They were right about Russia invading Ukraine. So are they the right people to go to for the micromorts of us dying in a nuclear war, for instance? Say I've got $32,000 burning a hole in my pocket. Should I be investing it or should I be investing in a bomb shelter? Yeah, well, maybe we can talk about... Uh, that decision a bit later, because that might depend on your own <laughs> appetite and depend on your own thoughts about, you know, whether you'd like to live in a, a post-apocalyptic London or, or something. But certainly they seem interesting people to ask this question, right? And, and in fact, in March, this is exactly the question they asked. They said, what is the risk of someone in London dying in the next month due to a nuclear explosion? That risk that no one really wants to, to think about. And, and the way forecasting works is they basically... Um, break this down into a series of smaller questions like will there be a nuclear war between NATO and Russia and if there is a nuclear weapon in London what percentage of people might might die and these forecasters they each go away they make their own prediction and they come back and they the group discusses it with each other they say actually I think Putin will de-escalate if this happens or actually I think that most people will survive or whatever it might be and then they come back together and they update their answers and then they average their predictions in this this kind of special way of averaging that is quite popular with group forecasting now essentially the results were that these forecasters concluded there was a 0.01 percent chance that London would be hit by a nuclear weapon between mid-March and mid-April 2022 and turns out 
London was not hit by a nuclear weapon in that time span. If you put that on a per-person level, and to get back to this concept of micromores, they estimated the risk of um, you know, being in London during those four weeks was essentially 24 micromores like, across that month. In other words, if you stayed in London, it posed the same amount of added uh, risk as riding a motorbike for 144 miles or going hang gliding three times. Um, and they've actually updated their predictions since then, because obviously the situation has changed in, in Ukraine. And in you know, beginning of October, they estimated that the chance of London being hit has probably doubled, or at least over the next three months, has maybe doubled to 0.02%. And I spoke to one of the researchers and they said, you know, it's quite difficult to extrapolate these two findings in terms of micromorts, but maybe the risk for a Londoner is something around 40 micromorts now. So that's a little riskier than using ecstasy four times although data on that is a little bit a little bit patchy we should say that other forecasters have made kind of different forecasts about nuclear war so there's a center called the swift center for applied forecasting which puts the likelihood of a nuclear weapon being detonated somewhere in europe at before april 2023 at 9.1 which is uh slightly terrifying to contemplate um a crowd sourced forecasting platform called metaculus i think is how you say it puts the likelihood of a nuclear detonation in ukraine by 2023 at four which again is probably higher than you want um I must say, it does feel kind of slightly weird, kind of callous to be talking about this in terms of percentages and probabilities, but it's actually kind of helpful. Yeah, I I had a similar kind of um, you know, transition as I thought about this piece. At first I thought, yeah, it's callous, it's a, it's a wrong way to think about it. Um, but then on the other hand, I actually think we talk about probabilities all the time. So when people say, oh, that'll never happen, or it's super unlikely, but what we're actually doing is we're assigning some form of likelihood. I think most people would agree that it's not impossible that a nuclear war would happen, just as, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, super forecasters said, it's pretty likely there will be a big pandemic that kills more than a million people, that kills more than 10 million people. If you just look at the data, these really horrible but big scale risks they do happen. And I think if we want to go to the specific case of, um, you know, being in London or you know, this kind of overall risk of, of a wider nuclear conflict, I think you can have two equally valid reactions. And one is that 24 micromorts is really low. This is not necessarily something you need to be worrying about when you get up in the morning. But 24 micromorts is a lot higher than we would like it to be. So you might come out of this thinking, well, actually, we really should be reducing this overall background um, risk of nuclear war. You know, even if the situation wasn't here, just the idea that there's this, this risk that really could be such a kind of terrible catastrophe. Well, that's something you really want to look at minimising as much as possible. And also the way the predictions work might give us some valuable insights into how you might want to minimise this risk. So what, you know, how it essentially works is that they do these kind of stepped predictions. So they say, OK, if this thing happens, will this thing happen? So the SWIFT forecast basically said, if Ukraine takes back this certain city, what is the likelihood that Russia would respond with a nuclear weapon, for instance? And this might give you some indication of, um, A, the steps that you might want to you know, avoid going down the escalation paths that you might want to avoid going down. So, you know, how can we negotiate a piece before this? What kind of negotiated piece might be the right path? Who might you try and influence in order to change Putin's decisions? But it also might tell you the converse. It might tell you, well, if nuclear war hasn't happened when this city fell, 
maybe we can be fairly confident that nuclear war won't happen in the future. So I think that, you know, it feels quite cold-blooded, but to, to break down these problems and think about where the risk lies and how you might diminish these risks, you know, another thing you might ask is, but I think the risk of someone misinterpreting um, an attack or someone going rogue is just way too high. So you might say, okay, how do we increase links of communication so this misinterpreting doesn't happen. That's exactly what happened in the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's why they set up this so-called red telephone or red hotline, which is actually not a telephone um, and it's not red. But the idea was is that you want to prevent miscommunications when these tensions are very high. So actually breaking this down, I think, does have some utility. It's not like a just an abstract exercise. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I, I think this is probably a slightly trite point, but I think the other thing to bear in mind is that kind of horrible, unlikely things sort of happen all the time. So even if there is a 0.01% chance of a nuclear bomb falling on London, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to happen. But I think that you're right that by building models to make these predictions, we can see which factors contributed to the overall level of risk, I guess. So if you kind of say, okay, well, doing this action increased the number of micromorts by this amount, then we probably shouldn't do that and vice versa. But on an individual level, you know, we're not the ones making kind of policy decisions and strategy decisions about the war in Ukraine. What can we do with this information now that you've given it to us, Matt? So I think there are a couple of things. I think there, on one level, you might want to set your own threshold for which you might consider changing your actions. So I don't think 24 or 40 micromorts is something that someone in London should really worry about in terms of changing their um, actions, unless you thought that like you would be super valuable in a, a post-nuclear war world, in which case you say, you might say, I don't know, Amit, you may be great at building shelters and, I don't know, restarting nuclear reactors or whatever. And so you say, it's really important that I survive. So even if there's a very small risk, I, I'm going to make sure that I avoid that risk. Some people made that decision, you know, early on in the um, in the crisis. And they, they left London for, for kind of similar reasons. They thought their work was so valuable. They thought it was reasonable for them to leave. But it does suggest there might be thresholds at which you might want to change your behaviour. So I think the Samotsvati forecasters suggest that if a nuclear weapon is used in Ukraine, that would bring the likelihood um, of a nuclear weapon being used elsewhere by about, it would increase it by about tenfold. And therefore, the risk calculation completely changes. But actually, I kind of want to flip that question to to each of you, because I think it's really, we had this conversation in the office, it's really easy to say, if there's a nuclear war, I would do nothing. I would just stay here and whatever would happen would happen. But when you and I were talking about this, Amir, I said the same thing. Like, if someone told you a nuclear weapon was coming in a day, would you really stay in London? And I think most people would say, well, if I could get out, I wouldn't. And I think that begs the question, well, there must be some threshold of risk at which you would change your decision making. It's not actually completely out, out of your hands. So I don't know, I Amit, mean, after our conversation, if you thought well, maybe there is a, a micromort level at which I would reconsider. Yeah, I think it's really, and the point I was making to you earlier is that people make decisions that increase their chance of death all the time. It's just on a much longer time horizon. So smoking, for instance, eating red meat, riding a motorcycle, base jumping, like these are all things that people decide to do, even though it massively increases the risk of death. But most of those things are on a kind of much longer time horizon. And I think as humans, we're quite bad at, we're quite good at avoiding immediate risk and we're quite bad at calculating kind of long-term risk. So I think that's kind of interesting. The other point I wanted to make is that you use swimming as an example. So say swimming has, you know, a 60 micromorts, but then you have to also trade that off against the micromorts that are associated with not swimming, i.e. not exercising and the micromorts that come with that so even not doing something is still a decision that probably comes with its own level of risk attached to it 
And we've kind of moved away from talking about nuclear war here, but I think just in our kind of day-to-day lives, I think that's quite an interesting trade-off. And it's probably one that we all kind of subconsciously make, but maybe we're not very good at actually assessing the risks accurately. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point, that actually you can remove micromorts as well, but we don't necessarily think of ourselves as having that much agency. What about you, Morgan? Is there a, is there a level that you're thinking, oh, maybe, maybe I would leave London? I think for me the trade-off is... I would leave if I knew a nuclear bomb was coming to London, even though I'm not very good at building shelters. But I think the impact, the risk for me is if I worried about it when it wasn't going to happen and impacted my life in a negative way by worrying slash changing my decisions to form my life around this risk, as opposed to acting when I knew the risk was concrete. But then I guess you're very unlikely to know, you're unlikely to get like a day notice that it's definitely going to happen actually that, that's a really good point because I, I spoke to a, a researcher called Anders Sandberg and I said well look what are you doing and what do you think people should do you know rather than just like worrying in this abstract sense and he was like well you know there are some things that are just good to do in any situation you know in a disaster often the people you turn to are your neighbors the people that are close to you the people that can help you so hey maybe it wouldn't be a terrible idea to get to know your neighbor and you know you've got that there and also it's kind of a nice thing to know your neighbor anyway so maybe the takeout is actually these really kind of basic things like building more connections makes you more resilient no matter what the future scenario what a heartwarming note to end on that that's lovely we're all gonna die so make friends with the neighbors cheery stuff um that's about all we've got time for on this week's podcast um do let us know what you think of um either story that we've covered this week podcast at wired.co.uk we do love getting your feedback um we'll see you next time goodbye bye, bye. Thank you.